Father's Day to the fathers in the room. Uh, we had a gift for the mother Mother's Day. We had roses. Uh, for the dads, we got books, but they came one day late. <laughs> so they'll be here next week, so you have something to look forward to. And we got this book. It's called Milk for Little Ones. Kind of a weird name. But it is a children's catechism. So they'll be on the back table and we can pass them out next week. And it's actually perfect timing because some of you might know, we've been talking about, you know, catechisms and all these things. And so one thing that we're going to start next week is actually a morning catechism service. So every other week we'll switch between fellowship in the morning at 9 o'clock and we'll switch between that and catechism. And so we'll meet at 9 o'clock, there'll still be coffee and everything, come sit down, and we're going to try to incorporate the kids and the adults. So there'll be scripture reading, there'll be a kids catechism question, we'll bring all the kids to the front, we'll do a question and answer, have the kids learn some stuff, and then we'll do a catechism for the adults, we'll go over that, I'll talk about it. It'll be very, it'll be chiller, <laughs> it'll be much more um, family devotion feel. And then we'll pray and we'll sing a song. And then we'll begin service at 9.30 as normal. So something to look forward to next week. If my microphone's cutting out, let me know. I can just turn it off. There's no huge reason for it. Okay, well, I was reminded of this psalm this morning. And the psalmist says this. He says, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. <laughs> that I feel that every Sunday, even on the Sundays where kids are a little bit whiny or, <laughs> you know, it's harder to get out the door, I'm reminded that there's no other place that I'm comforted and reminded of God's grace than when we gather today on the house of the Lord. So if you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship, which comes from Isaiah, the prophet. And he says this, this great promise in Isaiah 40, and we'll talk about it more this morning. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Do you want to remain standing and turn to him 224? We'll sing before the throne of God above.
Good morning. We come to our confession of sin this morning in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I will read all. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going up to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, in Sadducees, coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Repentance. I was thinking a little bit about it, but it's, it's not something that we do one time to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not something that you do just one time, you know, when you get saved. Repentance is really more of a lifestyle of the believer. And we see that throughout all the scriptures, I would say from Genesis to Revelation, you see many times and many scriptures, many writers where they would ask God to forgive them for, for their sins. And as we do this every week together, I was thinking about it, but it's just a very powerful thing that we get to do this as a church family, that we get to repent of our sins together. It's pretty cool, and it, it really is a humbling thing. Um, don't want to add too much to it, but I just think that Bible also talks a lot about humility, and I was thinking about this morning, like, I can't think of anything more humbling than to be honest with yourself and honest with God to repent of your sins. So it's pretty awesome. So would you all please read with me this prayer of confession. Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves, aware of our sinfulness, and our tendency to follow our own way. Our hearts are idle factories. We worship our jobs, our families, our comforts, our desires. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of repentance for the sake of Christ. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruit of true repentance. Amen. You can turn to hymn number 216. We will sing Solid Rock.
come to our assurance of pardon. And I have to admit, this is probably one of my favorite parts of the service. Um, I love how we have seen our sin, we've confessed our sin, and now we get to take a portion of scripture that really tells us promises of the gospel that we have in Christ. So now it's encouraging, so that's awesome. Um, and if you'll pay attention to the second portion of this scripture, you'll see all these amazing things that God does for us, the believer. He regenerates us, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he richly pours out his blessings on us. I mean, we become heirs according to Christ. It's incredible. So I'm not going to go on and on. Just pay attention to the second portion of this assurance of pardon, and you will see all of it clearly in Scripture. Praise God. Titus 3, 3 through 6. I forget. I'm sorry. Do we all read this part? Yep. We all read this together. No, you can read it. I can read it? Okay, I'll read it. Sorry. <laughs> For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in, or in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal Let's pray. God, you are so awesome, and we thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. We thank you for your glorious gospel, and we thank you that you've opened our eyes to see um, your truth. Lord, we ask that we would also learn more about you today, and that we would worship you with all of our hearts. Amen. Our confession of faith, found in the Baptist Catechism, question, sorry, question number 92. What is repentance unto life? Please read with me the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. If you want to open up with me uh, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we'll be continuing our study through John's Gospel. We've finished up the prologue finally. <laughs> uh, it's a big hurdle in John's Gospel. There's a lot in there. Hopefully you've seen that. And those first 18 verses really set the stage. And they really make sense of the rest of the Gospel. And even maybe this morning you'll see things alluded that were in the prologue that John is going to continue to reference back and forth. And so this morning we'll look at verses 19 through 28 in the first chapter of John. And we come to a very interesting start to, to John's Gospel. This is almost kind of like the, step, the second start. You know, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, there'll be a prologue, there'll be, you know, this history, this background, and then the movie sort of starts. And that's sort of what we have here, is this prologue, this background, 
and then John sort of begins again his gospel. And he begins in sort of an interesting way, where many other gospel writers begin with Christ's birth, with the genealogy of the people leading up to Christ, um, the virgin birth, the angel coming to Mary, all these other ways, and John jumps right into the story. And he begins with almost this courtroom scene. If you remember from the prologue, John the Baptist, who we'll talk about this morning, is called a witness. He's a witness. You can almost think of courtroom language, calling a witness to testify to what they've seen, to what they've heard. If you remember any big cases in history, that's what a witness does. They come and they testify to what they've seen and to who someone is, whether their character or evidence or events that happened. And that's sort of where John begins. He begins with this testimony, this ministry of John the Baptist. And what we'll see this morning, hopefully, is that as much as this passage is about John the Baptist, in another sense, it's not about him at all. <laughs> and that sort of sums up all of John's ministry, John the Baptist, that he must increase I must decrease, is the refrain that John says over and over, that Christ must increase, that he must decrease. Because John, throughout this whole paragraph, is pointing to Christ. He's saying, it's not about me. People want to make it about John. They want to make it about him, how he's promised in the Old Testament, all these things. And John says, no, it's about Christ. And so we'll see that this morning. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read our verses. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning in awe of your grace, in awe of your wonder, and your mercy to us, Lord, that you would look on us in love and call us, Lord, that you would send your Son, that you would give us your word, that you would pour out your Spirit on us, Lord, that we might know you and the truth that brings life. And this morning, Lord, whatever is going on in our lives, whatever is troubling us, whatever is distracting us, Lord, may those things fall away and may we fix our gaze on you. 
May we see the witness and the testimony of John the Baptist this morning as he says over and over again, He, the Christ, must increase and we must decrease. May that be our refrain this morning and may you sanctify us, equip us for every good work, and may you help us to trust in you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we begin with John. Not John the writer of the gospel, not John the apostle, but John the Baptist. It's a little bit confusing. <laughs> you hear all these names, John, John, who's talking here. This is John the Baptist. And as we said, John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, begins this gospel differently. And he not only begins it differently for Jesus, but he begins it differently for John the Baptist. Because if we go to Luke's gospel, Luke takes us all the way back to before John the Baptist's birth. If you're familiar with that story, we hear of his birth, his ministry, and his death. And he has sort of a miraculous birth, that his mother Elizabeth was barren, she was old in age, and her husband, Zechariah, was a prophet, or he was a priest in the temple. And he goes into the temple, and an angel appears to him and says, your wife is going to have a son. And he says, but how am I going to know? <laughs> Which is sort of funny <laughs> when you think about it. There's an angel in front of him that tells him something, and his first question is, how am I going to know? And so he doubts, and what actually ends up happening is the angel strikes him mute. And so he's not able to talk for the duration of his wife's pregnancy, which might have actually been a blessing to Elizabeth if any uh, mothers are in the room. <laughs> Maybe if your husband was silent the whole time, it would have gone smoother in some ways. But So we see John the Baptist's birth, his miraculous birth, and we see that he is promised to come to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and after his birth, he goes into the wilderness. And we read this morning that he's in the wilderness, and that he's sort of strange, <laughs> that he's wearing a garment of camel's, camel's hair, that he eats locusts and honey, and that he has a leather belt. And this would have been identifying him, identifying him with the prophets of the Old Testament, that this is the clothing that the Old Testament prophets would have worn. And then in a lot of ways, John's ministry is that of the last Old Testament prophet. And we can see that through these different parallels, that even though John is in the New Testament, his ministry and life are in a lot of ways symbolic of an Old Testament prophet. Why do I say that? Because his message is one of repentance, of turning. And there's these even ceremonial cleansings, this baptism, this washing that John is, this is the work of his ministry, is repentance and baptism, cleansing. And I say that this resembles that of an Old Testament prophet because if we think about Israel's history, this is the story of Israel, right? God has a people, and they end up going into slavery in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. And God, through Moses, leads the people out of Egypt. They call this event the Exodus, the Exodus event, that there's a Passover, there's a splitting of the sea, that the waters part, that the Israelites go through on dry ground, 
The Egyptians are washed away with the water, judged, and God leads them into the promised land. But it's not that simple. (laughs) Because what happens? The people doubt God. What's one of the first things the people of Israel say when they get through to the other side? God's just led them out of slavery. What's the first thing they say? We want to go back to Egypt. (laughs) We like the food there better. They, They want to go back to slavery. They don't like this exodus, this salvation that God has brought. And the people start complaining. And they want to go back. They refuse to enter the promised land. That God even shows them the promised land. He leaves spies into the land and they're scared. And they see giants and they don't want to go. And so Moses calls the people to repent. He says, turn. Turn from your sin. Trust in the Lord. But ultimately... God, in a sense, exiles the people. That that whole generation that came through the Red Sea, came into the wilderness, is not allowed to go into the Promised Land. Even Moses himself is kept from the Promised Land because they doubted the Lord. They were hard-hearted, is what the Lord says to them. And so Joshua is the one that leads this new generation into the Promised Land. So there's this message of repentance... That should resemble John the Baptist. And even throughout the rest of the Bible, the prophets of old were calling the people to repentance. They would look back to the covenant that God made with them on Mount Sinai, and they would say, you're not following the Lord. You need to repent. You need to turn. You're sinning. You've broken God's law. You need to repent. And, or else, you will be exiled. That just like that wilderness generation was exiled, the prophets of old called the people to repent or they would be exiled. I'll turn that off. And throughout the prophets, we see that they call the people to do this. Repent and turn or they will be in exile. And the history of Israel tells us that the people did not do this. They did not repent. They did not turn. We see them exiled to Assyria. The ten tribes are wiped out, essentially, because they did not repent. We see in later on in Babylon, the people of Judah and Benjamin are exiled because they did not repent. They're exiled. They're enslaved. And this mirrors what John the Baptist is doing. Like an Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist is coming and saying, repent. Or there will be judgment. Repent, turn from your sin, confess, because the kingdom of God is at hand. That judgment is coming, that exile is coming. And we saw in our confession of sin this morning, and we see throughout this gospel, that the people did not like this. The people did not like this message. And that specifically the religious leaders of the day did not like this message. That John the Baptist's ministry caused the religious leaders frustration. They didn't like this guy out in the wilderness wearing weird clothes, eating weird things. They didn't like this message. And so they come to him and they actually send these delegates to him to ask him these questions. And these aren't catechism questions. These are confrontation questions. (laughs) They are confronting John, who he is, and what is he doing. And so we see in verses 19 through 23, the summary of their question is, who are you? Who are you? 
And they ask this question essentially four different times. And he says the first time, I am not the Christ. They ask, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. And then they say, say, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. And they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, no. And then finally they say, who are you? We need an answer. Tell us something. Your answers have only been negative. Tell us who you are. And he just quotes scripture at them. (laughs) And so we have to stop here for a minute and we have to look at these questions because these questions and even John's answers are assuming something. If we look at the first question, they ask, who are you? And John's answer is sort of strange. He doesn't say, I'm John the Baptist. (laughs) He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. So his answer assumes that these religious leaders thought he was the Christ. So he's confronting their presuppositions, and he's saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not this anointed one sent from the Lord. I'm not that. And so they ask him, are you Elijah? And so during this time in the first century, the Jews would have been expecting a sort of reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. If you remember the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, there's this promise in Malachi that someone like Elijah is going to come again. But during this time, the people thought that Elijah was going to kind of come back to life, almost resurrect and incarnate into a, a human and, and have a ministry. And so John is confronting that. He knows what they're thinking, and he answers, I'm not Elijah. And then they ask, are you the prophet? And you might notice that he does, they don't ask, are you a prophet? They ask, are you the prophet? And your Bibles might even have a capital P there. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about in Deuteronomy, Moses says there's going to be a prophet that comes after him that's greater than him. A prophet that's greater than Moses. And so the people at that time, the Jews, would have been expecting this prophet to come that would be greater than Moses. But John the Baptist says, no. So he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. And they say, we need an answer. (laughs) Tell us something that we can go back and give to the people that sent us. And this really sets the stage for this tension that's throughout John's gospel between the religious leaders and Jesus. Between unbelieving Jews and the followers of Christ. We'll see it come up in John 3 with Nicodemus and Jesus. We'll see it come up in John 6 with the unbelieving Jews and Christ. We'll see it come up later in John 8 and all these different places. There's just tension that builds throughout John's gospel between the religious leaders and Christ. And ultimately, it leads to Christ's death. These religious leaders can't handle John the Baptist or Christ. And it escalates to the point of death for Christ. And so we see here that this thing is just beginning. And so they're asking these questions. They're trying to figure out, John, who are you and what are you doing? And he only gives them one positive answer. And we see it there in verse 23. And he says this. So he said, I am not, I am not, I am not. But in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
that if you have any cross-references in your Bible, it should cross-reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is a direct quotation from the the book of Isaiah. We read it this morning in our call to worship that John is saying, in a sense, I am a fulfillment of prophecy. I am this voice. I am this one promised in Isaiah. He's not reinterpreting Isaiah to mean something that it didn't mean. He's saying, that which the prophet said, that's what I am. And Isaiah, if we go back to the book of Isaiah and you look at the book of Isaiah, this quotation comes in a crux. It comes in a key point in Isaiah's book. That Isaiah is speaking to a people that are about to go into exile. They've broken God's covenant, and they're about to be exiled into Babylon. They're about to be enslaved. That judgment is coming. And so chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah are all about this coming judgment because of the breaking of the covenant. And then we come to Isaiah 40, where God says, comfort my people. And then he says the words that we read this morning. A voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. That from chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah, it turns from judgment to hope. From exile, coming doom, to salvation. And so, John, quoting this passage, looks forward to a time when God himself will come and make a way for his people. That Isaiah 40 is talking about this time when God himself will come and make a way for his people. That after exile, after enslavement, that God will come again and make a way. Between exile and the promised land. Between slavery and salvation. That God is going to come. He's going to make a way. He's going to clear this highway for the people of God. And all this imagery that we've seen in Isaiah is... Exodus imagery. It's salvation imagery. The people would have heard these words of Isaiah of God making a way for the people, and they would have thought Exodus. They would have thought in their heads of the Exodus. That what happened in the Exodus, God brought his people from slavery and bondage to salvation, to the promised land. That the Exodus event was the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. If you ask somebody in the Old Testament, what's the greatest thing that God did to redeem his people? They would have said the Exodus, right? They were enslaved for 400 years. God brought them out of slavery through plagues and signs and many things. And they would have said, that's the greatest redemptive act that God did in the Old Testament. And so God made a way through the waters, through the wilderness, to the promised land. But Isaiah, the way he is talking, and the other prophets, he's looking forward to something in the future. Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these other Old Testament prophets are looking forward to something greater than the Exodus event. Where God himself will come and make a way for his people. And the prophet Jeremiah says something very interesting in chapter 16. He he says, There will come a day when you will no longer say, As the Lord led you through the Red Sea, 
but as the Lord brought people from all nations and tribes. That there's this almost greater exodus that God is going to do. This greater redemptive act in the future that God is going to bring about. That it's going to be so great that the people will forget about the first exodus. That there's going to be a greater exodus event. So what is this? (laughs) Well, these questions and answers really get to the heart of John's whole ministry. And so we can ask these questions. Why is John calling people to repentance? Why is John baptizing people? Why does he hear, quote, Isaiah? John is telling the people, you're still in exile. You're still in exile. You're still in bondage. You're still in slavery. And that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We see that in what we read from Matthew. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we know that the Jews would have objected to this for two reasons. The first one, they would have said, exile? We're in the promised land. John, we're not in exile. We're in the land. What are you talking about? They would have been maybe confused by that. That we are in the promised land, John. Don't you know? But what John is saying is you're not going to be, you're not in exile physically, but your sin has exiled you from the presence of God. That you can be in this physical land, but your sin has separated you from the presence of God. That the earthly promised land in Israel, as great as it was, and he promised it to Moses, I mean Abraham, that as great as it was, it was a picture of the heavenly promised land that God would lead his people to. Heaven itself, this land flowing with milk and honey, that the people had misunderstood the point of the promised land. It was to point to the heavenly promised land. It was a picture of God's rest there. The kingdom of heaven, we see John call it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the people would have said, no, we're not in exile. We're in the land. And John's saying, you've been exiled from the presence of God. But they would have objected in another way. They would have said this, we're not in exile and we're not in slavery. What are you talking about? They would have said, we're children of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. What do you mean we've been exiled? We don't need to be cleansed. We don't need to be baptized. We don't need to confess our sins. We're children of Abraham. We're special. And we know throughout John's gospel and what we read this morning that John the Baptist confronts this idea. He says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's saying, don't presume on that. Jesus will later in the gospel of John confront some of the people. In John chapter 8, Jesus has just healed a blind man. And the Pharisees are upset about this. And Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you, know, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they are frustrated. And they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they don't like this idea of being set free. They don't like Christ's words here. Because they say, we're not, we're not enslaved to anyone. But what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Everyone that practices sin is a slave to sin. And it's almost absent-minded of the Pharisees to say that they've never been enslaved because (laughs) think about Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years. Think about Babylon. They were enslaved. They're almost just being totally wrong when they say that we've never been enslaved. But Jesus doesn't even address that. And he says, your problem isn't physical enslavement. It's your slavery to sin, that you're enslaved to your sin. And so John's saying that you're in exile. Don't presume to say we have Abraham as your father is to say you need something more than just physical birth, that your problem is slavery to sin. It's not external, but it's internal. And it's not temporary slavery, but eternal slavery, slavery to sin and death. And so in a way, we can say that John is speaking to us, right? John is speaking to us. How often do we presume on our external circumstances, right? We can say to ourselves, everything is going well in my life. Everything is going well. I have a family. I have a home. I have all these things. And so we can think that because things are going well in our life, that God must be happy with me, that God must be content with what I'm doing, that it doesn't really matter if I sin, if I go against God, that everything externally is going well, and we presume on God's patience. And we even presume on our own flesh, as the Jews would have at this time, that we presume on our own flesh, we say, I can work enough, I can do enough good things, that that's what makes me right before God. If I work hard enough, if I am born in the right family, I'm not enslaved to anything. And we can think this way. And so John's words of, of judgment coming should apply to us in a very same way, in a very similar way. That John is saying to the people and to us, you're in exile. That you're enslaved to your sin. But there's also hope in John's message. That there is hope in his words that he quotes from Isaiah. That God is going to make a way, that there's going to be a new and better Exodus event in which God himself will make a way through the waters, through the wilderness, not from earthly slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death, not from slavery or earthly bondage, but eternal bondage, not from the earthly promised land, but to the heavenly promised land that God himself will make a way. And so when he turns in verses 24 through 28, they ask him, what are you doing? Why are you baptizing? He's saying that the Christ is here. He doesn't point to himself. He doesn't look to himself. He doesn't say, look at me. I'm a fulfillment of prophecy. He's saying Christ is here. There's one greater than me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He's the prophet promised in the Old Testament. And he's the one that's going to bring this greater exodus event. That the Son of God, as we read in the beginning of John, is going to take on flesh, dwell among us, and save his people from their sins. That he will pass through the waters, go into the wilderness, and bring his people to eternal life. That this is what John is saying here. It's not about me. The reason I'm baptizing, the reason that I'm pointing people to this coming one is because it's not about me. It's about him. 
He must increase, I must decrease. And we see that this is why John is calling people to repentance and why he's baptizing them. He's pointing them to the Christ to come. And so this morning we can say that, in a sense, that this is the message of the gospel, right? This is the message of the gospel. What is the gospel? The word gospel means literally good news. Good news. But the truth is that before news can be good, there has to be bad news. There has to be bad news. That we are in exile. That John is saying we are in exile. We're enslaved to our sins. That in and of ourselves, in our own passions and desires, we're enslaved. We're enslaved. That we're in sin. We're in exile. That because of Adam's sin in the garden and the fall, that we are enslaved. That we're exiled from the presence of God. And so this is the bad news. But the gospel is the pronouncement of the good news. Of this new exodus that God has brought through the person and work of his son. That God himself has made a way where me and you could not make a way. We couldn't work hard enough. We couldn't do enough right. God in Isaiah is saying God will make a way. God will make a way through the waters, through the wilderness. And that is what John is saying, that God has made a way. That it's not about me, it's about him. That Christ has come, has been exiled in a sense, right? What was his death? He was crucified outside of the city. Cursed as one who hangs on a tree. Exiled. So that we might enter the heavenly promised land. That God, through Christ, made a way through the wilderness so that our mountains of sin and our valleys of guilt might be leveled. So that we might be made right with God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so we have to ask, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to John's call? His call to repent and be baptized. How do we respond to it? We repent and we should be baptized. That this is the message and this is the response. The response to the good news is to believe it. To believe it. To believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he came and did what we could not. That he came as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That when we hear this message of good news, the response to it is not work. It's not do, it's believe. It's trust in Christ. It's trust in him, his finished work on the cross. Have faith in what he's done. Receive him and rest on him alone for salvation. This should be the first thing we do as when we hear this message. But the second thing is to repent. To repent. To turn. That that is what John is calling the people here to do. To repent and turn from their sin, to confess their sin to God. And as Andrew said, not just once, but continually. Not just in general, say, I'm a sinner, but in particular. To say, these are the ways I've gone against your holy law. To turn from our sin is not just to not sin, but it's to actively pursue righteousness. To pursue the things of God, God and his ways. And so what is repentance? It's acknowledging that even the smallest sin is worthy of death. That the smallest sin is worthy of death. 
And that in our pride, what do we end up doing when we hear that? We don't live our lives like that. How do we live our lives? We live our lives by comparison. We say, my sin is not as bad as that person's sin. And so we lift ourselves up a little bit more than this person. And as long as what we do is not as bad as that person, then it's okay. And slowly, in our pride, we raise ourselves higher and higher. And so even the smallest sin in our life just gets kind of swept under the rug because it's not as bad as whatever person we picture in our head. But Paul can say this, that he's the chief of sinners. That the Apostle Paul, the great apostle that wrote half the New Testament, can say, I'm the chief of sinners. Is he saying that because he's objectively the most evil person that ever lived? I don't think so. But the reason he's saying that is because he knows his sin most intimately. That he can say he's the chief of sinners because I don't know what goes on in all of your heads. But I know what goes on in my head. I know what the unthoughtful words I say. The things that I do that break God's law. And so hopefully we can say with the Apostle Paul that we're all the chief of sinners. And so repentance is not only seeing that The smallest sin deserves death, but it's realizing that even the greatest sin can be forgiven by God. Even the greatest sin can be forgiven by God. That no matter, you might say to me, Kendall, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know. And you're right. I don't. But God does. God does. God knows what we've been through. He knows our pain and our suffering. And what does Paul say right before he says he's the chief of sinners? He says, this saying is trustworthy and true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That he came into the world to save sinners. That that is the work of Christ. To come and to save sinners. That this is what God does. He calls us to come. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Turn from your sin and come to me. So we're to believe the gospel. We're to repent as John calls us. And we're also to be baptized. We're also to be baptized. We're to go under the water. And this can be an odd thing for a lot of us. Because in a lot of cultures and in a lot of religious backgrounds, this is simply something that's done at summer camp every summer, right? (laughs) Every summer we go to summer camp and we hear the message and we just recommit our lives to the Lord and so we just keep going under the waters and we think it's just this thing that we should do every time we recommit our lives to the Lord. But that's not how we see it used in scripture, that baptism is a means of grace. It's a means of grace. It's an identification of ourselves With Christ, We're saying we are united to him and all his benefits. That what he won on the cross in his life and his death and his resurrection, that it's ours. It's a sign of fellowship with him. That we are with him in his death and in his resurrection, in his burial and in his rising. That it's not something that we do for God. It's actually a sign of what God has done for us. Have you ever thought about it like that? It's not something we do for God only. It's a sign of what God has done for us. That Christ, in his death, was buried. He underwent the waters of judgment for us. But he didn't stay there. He came up again. 
He came up and resurrected out of the, out of the tomb, out of the grave, was raised so that we might have newness of life. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That this is the point of baptism. It's to, it's to identify ourselves with Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And it's also to symbolize both cleansing and judgment. It's to symbolize both cleansing and God's redemptive judgment. Cleansing, I think, is pretty straightforward for us, right? Just as we're cleansed when we take a bath, God cleanses us of our sins. That's pretty straightforward. But what are you talking about, Kindle? this idea of redemptive judgment? Think about how water is used throughout the Bible. It's both salvation, it's both cleansing, but it's also symbolic of judgment. Think of Noah in the ark. The waters come, and for Noah, the waters are salvation. He's in the ark, he's saved from the judgment waters, but everyone else is judged. Same thing with the people of Israel through the Red Sea. They pass through the waters on dry ground, but the waters for the Egyptians are judgment. And so we can say that in our sin, that is what we deserve. We deserve judgment. But in our baptism, we're saying that Christ took the judgment, the baptism of God's wrath that we deserve, and has been raised up and justified. That, that his baptism in his death is our baptism. That in Christ we receive salvation. That Christ took the judgment that we deserve. That in Christ the judgment has been removed. For most of my life... I feared the judgment day. I feared the judgment day. I feared that I would get there and I wouldn't be enough. That I wouldn't have done enough good things. That that decision that I made, that that thing that I said, that that thing that I thought would keep me from heaven. And that plagued me for many years. Until I realized that, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ has took the judgment that we deserve, that he absorbed the wrath of God, and that when we identify him with him in our baptism, what we're saying is there's no more judgment left, that we can stand before God and not be afraid. Why? Because our sin was paid for. The judgment was taken by another. What does the prophet Isaiah say in Isaiah 43? He says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. What does John go on to say in John chapter 5? He says these words, beautiful words from the Apostle John that he writes of what Christ said. Christ says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. And then he says this. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the gospel of Christ. That in Christ, by believing in what he's done, we've passed from death to life. And that even though we are sojourners and exiles in this land, in this life, we look forward to the heavenly promised land that Christ has entered for us and we await heaven. We await the glory of God there. There's this great hymn. It's called, Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah. And the first verse goes like this. Guide me, O Thou Great Jehovah, pilgrim through this weary land. I am weak, but Thou art mighty. Uphold me with Thy powerful hand. And then it says this. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fearsome side, Death of death and hell's destruction lead me safe to Canaan's side. That Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection has led us to the heavenly promised land. And we partake of that now in part and we await the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this morning as we come to this time each week where we partake of the Lord's Supper... We are partaking of another means of grace. That if in baptism we're saying, I've believed in the gospel, I've repented, I've turned from my sin, I'm identifying self with Christ and his redeemed people. If that's what baptism is, then the Lord's Supper is saying it's a sign of continual fellowship with Christ and his people. It's a continual sign of fellowship with Christ and his people. That if you haven't, that's why every week I say, if you haven't believed in the gospel, if you haven't repented of your sin, if you haven't been baptized, then the supper isn't for you. Why? Because it's an identification with Christ and his people. That's what baptism is. It's a welcome sign. And the Lord's Supper is saying, I'm continually fellowshipping with Christ. I'm continually a part of him and his people. And so each week... If that's not you, then you shouldn't partake and you should sit and contemplate. And for your kids, if your kids haven't done that, if they haven't believed in the gospel and haven't turned from their sin, then it's a great opportunity to explain to them what is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? Why is it for those that have put their faith in Christ? It's a great time to disciple our kids and to explain to them why. Why we do what we do. That these aren't empty signs, but they have meaning. They're means of grace. And so, as we come this morning, may we remember that Christ has taken the judgment that we deserve. His body was broken. His blood was spilled so that we might be made right. So that we might pass from death to life. So, let's pray this morning together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The ministry of John that points forward to the Christ to come, who has come for us, that he's taken the waters of judgment and passed from death to life so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, may we come confessing our sin. May we not try to hide our sin from you. May we not compare ourselves to other people. May we see ourselves rightly before you sober-minded this morning, but 
More than that, may we come rejoicing. May we come happy, comforted that you have made a way for us in the wilderness that we might be made right with you. That your son came, his body broken, his blood spilled so that we might have life. May we repent and turn this morning and may we trust in Christ alone for salvation. We are weak, we're feeble, and so we need this every week to remind ourselves and to look forward to our coming salvation in Christ, in glorification, Lord. Help us this morning, take these humble elements and use them for your purposes, Lord. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So we come each week confessing our sin but rejoicing. So come as you're able. We'll form a line. Take the elements back to your seat and we'll partake together. We're reminded each week of our Lord's words. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the covenant, of the new covenant, Poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. If you want to stand now, we'll respond to God for his great grace by singing a psalm this morning. Psalm 23. And we'll be singing it to the tune of Amazing Grace.
Amen. We come to a time where we respond to all that God has provided for us by giving a portion of what we've received back to God. Not because he needs it, but because we love him and to serve him, ultimately. It should be out of gratitude, out of joy for what he's given us. Not to earn anything from God, but because of what he's done for us. So, let's receive our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for your great hand of provision on our lives. We have so much to be thankful for. Take these humble gifts, these humble offerings, and use them for your purposes, for the growth of your kingdom, that your glory might go throughout the ends of the earth, that your gospel might be proclaimed. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings So come at 9 o'clock, bring your kids, and we'll join together. Grace and peace as you go.